Hi everyone and welcome back. I'm Elspeth Holland and this is So I Decided, a podcast about changemakers in design and landscape architecture who are making a positive impact on the world around them. If you haven't yet listened to the introductory episode I released a few weeks ago, I would highly recommend that you listen to that to learn a little bit more about the show. This is the first episode where I'm introducing a guest and I couldn't be happier that that person is Renee Fan. In this episode, we have a really great conversation about her career in the unintentional and intentional decisions along the way. She's an incredibly kind person, and I am so grateful for her wisdom and honesty, which I find extremely refreshing and relatable. In the episode, we do talk about a job posting that has since been filled I will be including some show links if you do happen to be interested. Thank you again for being here. Thank you to Renee for joining me for the conversation, which I hope you greatly enjoy. Good morning, Renee. Thank you so much for joining me on the So I Decided podcast. I'm really grateful that you can take some time this morning to chat with me. Well, thank you for having me. I wonder if we can get started by you introducing yourself and a little bit about what you do and your background. Sure, sure. Um, well, good morning, Elspeth. Um, thanks for having me on. It's like I told you before, um, it, it's a great honor, but um, a little surprising for me. Um, I My name is Renee Fan, F-A-N, like a ceiling fan, although we're not named after that. Um, and I grew up in Calgary, Alberta, and studied geography and environmental studies, as well as historic preservation before landing in landscape architecture. Awesome. So you studied historic preservation and then made your way to landscape architecture. And I know, I know that you also worked a bit in that field prior to right. working as a landscape architect. Yeah, so after... Um, after historic preservation, I did work in a number of architecture offices, um, doing preservation work, um, building conservation and preservation, um, both in New York and Toronto. And mm -hmm. I think it was through that period of wanting to do more environmental work, um, as well as being... Um, just fascinated with uh, landscape issues and kind of infrastructure projects that were going in um, in New York at the time, like especially all the bikeways up along the Hudson, and then kind of the idea of the Hudson and the East River bikeways being all connected around the entire island, and me being a pretty committed cyclist and commuter, I, I kind of kind of returned to this interest in um, geography and, and landscape. I I hope you don't mind. Also, I looked you up prior to this, and I found a page where no, did you play the accordion? Oh yes, yes. I still. I mean, I wish I played more, but um, I played in an accordion band in an all accordion orchestra um, called the Main Amazing. Squeeze Orchestra, and I'm sure everyone would be so pleased that I'm plugging this right now. <laughs> I love that. The main squeeze. So, right. So just to backtrack, you you were here, you went to school for historic preservation, you worked in the field, avid cyclist, accordion player, and then <laughs> you had these interests in landscape. Mm -hmm. School brought you to Toronto. Yeah. So 
um, you know, I'm Canadian, and it it just made sense for me to study in Canada. Um, as we all know, the cost of education, um, and yeah. um, it's a you know, it's known as a great school. And I did visit before I moved to Toronto because I hadn't lived here before. Although it felt like I was returning home to Canada, it was actually a completely new city. Um, yeah. yeah. And so then I, I started an MLA at the University of Toronto. Um, yeah, after working for about like eight years in preservation, building preservation in New York, mm -hmm. cycling and accordion playing. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Can you speak to a little bit more about what is historic preservation look like in New York? What kind of things were you doing? So, I mean, it's, it's a pretty big field in terms of what I was doing was, you know, there's always a, a little bit of difference between theory and practice and what you study in school and what you end up doing for work. Um, but New York is filled with old buildings and yes. they are in need of repairs, you know, some more reconstruction and restoration than others. There um, was uh, a local law 11, which has now been changed to a different local law, which since I'm not there anymore, I don't remember the number, but um, they also required a lot of regular inspections um, of buildings uh, over a certain height to make sure that they were safe. Because parts had been falling off buildings and wow. injuring, if not killing people. Um, wow. Yeah. So that was also kind of a, a huge part of the work um, is is uh, surveying and doing uh, repair work for these historic buildings. And uh, like New York presents its particular kind of site and context, but I know preservation in, in different places can have much more landscape components than than a building like with just a sidewalk. Mm -hmm. Right. And yeah, so it was the Weeksville project in Brooklyn, which really kind of inspired me in terms of landscape preservation. So uh, there were two landscape architects for that project, and I thought they did the coolest work. Um, so Weeksville is um, originally these four wood-clad houses along what was called Hunterfly Road. Um, and this this road preceded the grid in, in Brooklyn. And um, so these houses didn't, didn't front Bergen Street, but actually kind of were sited facing into the lot. And the landscape architects, um, you know, were kind of tasked with recreating this dirt road, and also um, worked with an archaeologist to kind of do test pits of the backyards, um, analyze the pollen, um, reconstruct uh, wow. kitchen gardens. Um, also, like there were privy pits and outhouses. I mean, all of that I thought was really, really fascinating. Yeah, that's very cool. And then so you went to school for landscape architecture. Did any of that sort of come with you in how you approached the program? Or did it follow through at all in your studies or beyond when you started practicing? I think when when you start a design project in landscape architecture, history is just kind of one factor of investigation. History along with, say, uh, soils or um, use of the site um, program. Um, it's it's kind of just one thing that is part of your entire analysis. So I always 
think it's really important to know like the natural history, but also the cultural history and all those aspects. Uh, I think sometimes you can feel like it's hard to come up with an imaginative idea or concept when you're too tied to what used to be there. So it, right. it like it has to kind of like you have to be able to balance all those factors or um you know all those different parts of the site. So you you went to school and after that you entered like a landscape architecture firm? Yeah. From there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um well no, when I graduated from my MLA degree, it was a recession, and there there wasn't a lot of jobs. Um, mm-hmm. Although, I think, for me, it might have been a particularly different path or journey, um, because I'd come into this degree with experience, you know, um, a lot of experience with kind of all the programs, and also this experience in preservation that when I applied for jobs in landscape, no one knew what to do with. Right. So although like I considered it a kind of lateral move and staying within the design field or staying within the architecture and construction field, knowing all the programs, knowing how a project starts, moves and ends, I I don't think I was really <laughs> considered that hireable at the time because I had mm-hmm. um I was, you know, older, had all this experience that no one knew what to do with and didn't want to pay pay me for and so I wasn't going to be kind of the young cheap drafts person that oftentimes um, is kind of the starting point so I ended up doing preservation again after my three years in school mm-hmm. <laughs> which was you know um, at the time hard because it was a huge sacrifice to um, give up my life in New York and come back to right. school, um, be, be a, you know, on a very limited means and budget again. And then for all, all those three years after that to go back to what I was trying to leave. Yeah. So in that role, did the landscape or like further design education serve you at all? Did you think that you, you thought differently as you approach some of the same or similar work or issues? It did. Um, it did because there is like a, you know, a, a really important field of cultural heritage landscapes. Mm-hmm. So there are historic landscapes and um, these are um, kind of natural outdoor spaces which have been manipulated, you know, still designed. And I, I could you know, I was in a better position to assess and evaluate and survey this component of, say, yeah, uh, an investigation or uh, assessment. Um, But I had just come out of school, so I I needed, you know, a mentor and and someone to help, help me in this new field. But, like, after a year or so, I did get a job in landscape architecture, again. And that's when I moved back to New York for that. <laughs> ah, okay. Right. Did you under, ever end up finding a mentor or you just sort of applied and talked to everybody you could that led to this position in New York? Um, I, I just applied. Um, yeah. Like New York has always 
been a place of incredible opportunities and and an openness to people from mm-hmm. everywhere, which I didn't actually find in Toronto. Ah. <laughs> I found it very kind of connections-based and closed. Ah. And even though uh, even though you come with experience and education, I I didn't I had no connections. And, right. and that um, was a liability, whereas in New York, it's not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. You have people coming from everywhere, as you said. Right. Yeah. But I'm I'm also interested, like, did that reflect in the position you got in landscape? Or they do you think there was a slight more openness to the background you brought with you? As mm-hmm. well? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So in that case, the preservation experience was an asset because they worked on historic landscapes or um, sites that had historic features. And so, you know, thankfully, I I found a place that considered it good. <laughs> yeah, that's really, I mean, it sounds like it was particular also to what they were doing. So how long did you stay in New York? And then did you go back to Toronto following that? Yeah, I it's stayed a in New York. Nuanced. Yeah, I stayed in New York for a few more years. So I moved back, like l- literally during Hurricane Sandy, uh-huh. which which was uh, um, just like a and stunning's not the right word, but like a t- a time of like a huge. I don't know. It felt like an upheaval uh, or like a you know a crisis point. Um, we drove in, a friend and I drove in, and there were no lights, no no street lights south of, I don't know, 23rd? We drove in in the dark, uh, and there were police officers with flashlights. Um, Why were you driving in? You were, you were moving back at, at that yeah, time? Yeah, when I oh, first, wow. when I okay. first moved, like, no. Yeah, when I moved back to New York after being in Toronto, um, yeah, we drove down and there still wasn't um, streetlights down. Or maybe it's south of 59th. I remember seeing a really striking aerial photo where there was no power south of a certain point and it might have been 59th Street, like right south of Central Park. And um, people were home during the weekdays and it was, yeah, people lined up for gas. I remember um, uh, lining up, um, waiting for gas um, for hours. So it it was, yeah, it was a very, (laughs) yeah, like, you know, unusual for North America, not unusual for other places in the world. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think for, for landscape architects working in the city, that must have been a pretty interesting time to be coming and working in this field know the kind of conversations you must have heard yeah um the conversations weren't necessarily about like the the climate crisis the conversations Mm -hmm. were more kind of about um managing to get in or not into the city or not or um, right yeah kind of managing the emergency yeah Mm -hmm. yeah yeah it, it, like, yeah, it's an in- incredible, I mean, I think, resilient city. Mm-hmm, right. You mean the ways that people bond together and... Make it work. People are so friendly and helpful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Most times. Yes. 
I but suppose, especially in times, times of, of need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a kind of a great uh, solidarity of it's a great public culture. Um, I think the subways have to do a lot with it. Yeah, I remember um, walking over the bridge. I think it was the um, Manhattan Bridge um, after 9-11, and it was just completely uh, like guardrail to guardrail, just people. And uh, yeah, there's, um, I don't know, it's much easier to talk to strangers. Mm. I didn't realize, I mean, it's it's true, though, speaking to you about your time in New York, you had lived here through some you know, obviously very important moments in the city. Yeah. It's, yeah, and it's an incredible learning environment, which I think you've spoken to, you know. Yeah, again, like, not that New York is related to this podcast, but perhaps <laughs> in some way I have been influenced by this interest in people and people's stories and just like all the incredible, um, backgrounds I learn about it but but also especially in this in this field of of landscape architecture um you know it's small part in the world but the people it attracts who come from just such again varied backgrounds and I think this conversation we were having about what those backgrounds can bring to this field and um Mm-hmm. You know, it's interesting as we all move forward, especially dealing with events, you know, Hurricane Sandy being one of those, what we bring and how we move forward. And it it's not something that can solve all the world's problems, but <laughs> um, I think sometimes it it's, people speak about it like it can. Well, so. U of T <laughs> talks about it like that. <laughs> Which is amazing. And I think really creates some incredible designers and thinkers but you know i've been inspired by our conversations about i think some of the things that you're doing to help in your your our human way now and so i wonder if we can transition the conversation a little bit i'd love to hear you speak a little bit about what you're up to now we've missed a bit of a gap maybe maybe let's start from leaving new york Yes. So, I mean, you know, some changes that people make in their careers aren't intentional. Sometimes decisions are made for you or you make decisions not related to work. And I actually went to Nepal for about six months, which is a a reason for leaving New York. And I never lived in a developing country before. But I mean, just talking about things like lining up for gas for hours. um, These are all things that our reality for many people um, around the world. And yeah, I, I learned a lot and I became really grateful for being a Canadian and um, coming back home and being able to have light by just turning on a light switch and being able to get gas 24 hours a day, however much I wanted. I wasn't limited to like 25 yeah. liters. Um, I came back to Canada and also worked in a couple of private offices. And around the pandemic, I had this opportunity to work for a nonprofit. And mm-hmm. again, opportunities come in many different disguises. <laughs> mm-hmm. yes. um, so I had first heard about Rainscape through um, Helen Mills. And Helen Mills is the founder of Lost Rivers in Toronto. And I had known her through working in the summers for her when she had 
a gardening company called Green Gardeners. And so when I was a landscape architecture student at U of T, um, you know, we did yards, but we did specifically the specialty of Green Gardeners was rain gardens. And it's um, directing flow from a downspout um, to an area of plantings and infiltration, like water and infiltration. And it was a lot of fun. It was great experience for kind of smaller jobs close closer to where we started. We um, actually towed a trailer on my bike to to jobs. Um, <laughs> so it was kind of environmental in all of its, not yeah. just the um, the result, but in the operations. So like Helen is incredible and she still continues to this day leading walks about buried and lost streams in Toronto. And she had told me about an opportunity with Rainscape. Rainscape being a social enterprise within the Toronto Green community, which is kind of the, uh, a program, it's a nonprofit organization that has a number of initiatives, Rainscape just being one, uh, Lost Rivers being another. Got it. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that the uh, green communities was uh, the umbrella connecting those two. Mm -hmm. And actually, a Toronto green community is part of a much larger umbrella group called Green Communities Canada. And um, and that is the organization that um, manages the DPAVE projects in Canada. Right. Well, I reached out to you because I had read about it in the OALI, the Ontario Association of Landscape Architects publication. And I just thought it was so cool. This, um, see, it's funny because I, when I was reading about it, it sort of felt like this grassroots type initiative. I've learned since that it's a kind of a much bigger initiative. Yeah. So, um, DPAVE started in Portland, Oregon, right. uh, with um, projects that remove pavement, asphalt, concrete, any kind of impermeable surface, and planting in place, and planting um, beneficial species for pollinators or like habitat uh, for wildlife of that region, native species. And a lot of their projects are in, I believe, schoolyards, um, mm -hmm. uh, other community groups and organizations. Um, it came to Canada in 2012. And it has DPAVE projects across the country, but there have been many, many in Ontario. And so we did one last year in Toronto, and um, it had been suggested to me that it might be nice to write about it. So I reached out to Emily Aman um, from Green Communities Canada, and we just co-wrote a piece um, st starting out with my project, but um, also showing um, kind of the geographical reach and the many different types of sites that DPAVE can work on. Yeah, and I'd, I'd love to hear you speak more about, I know you mentioned this, the project you worked on was a store, mm -hmm. a privately owned store. And so how did the process go, like that starting that initial conversation? So, um, yeah, so we we did our project, that old school general store in, um, out near Woodvine Lumsden um, in East York. And we just reached out through all our channels, mm -hmm. like all the groups that we knew and people that we knew. Um, and Helen actually helped us find Toronto Urban Growers, Tug, and they knew about this property, which is a like a much-loved community store that sells everything um, that you need in just in terms of 
a snack, lottery tickets, cigarettes, as well as <laughs> incredible books, um, like food, um, and all, like gifts and like jigsaw puzzles, things for kids. Right. Uh, yeah, just a, a really neat place that um, all types of people from the neighborhood love. Mm-hmm. And they had a side yard um, that was paved and that they had tried to put um, potted plants and like a picnic table, but they really just wanted it to be all green. And um, they didn't know how they could manage that. You know, they're a small business, not a lot of capital, like not a lot of extra funds lying around, and they didn't know how they would ever have a garden. And so they were really excited at the idea of of depaving and definitely had enough um, loyal followers and people who came to the store that would help. And that's what depave requires. Volunteers. Yeah, it's definitely, um, it's the volunteers and the community that comes together to do the work um, of removing pavement and planting. That's amazing. So the process is literally removing pavement. So it's it's pretty hands-on. Very hands-on. Initiative. Right. It's heavy. And it, it's yeah. like a, a lot of elbow grease. <laughs> but it's so amazing because I, I imagine and I hope that this, you know, neighborhood and community members, especially the ones who actually use their hands to build this now feel, I imagine, pretty proud and of, of this new space they have. And is there like table and chairs type situation that you can enjoy it? Or just yeah. Visual. So what what we did for seating is that we bought gabion baskets, and yeah. so of the of the large amounts of concrete that we removed, we filled the gabion baskets with this salvaged um, waste material to make um, sitting areas. And they also, I think they've put um, they've kind of retrofitted wood boards on tops just to make a more comfortable sitting area, uh, sitting mm-hmm. surface um, for. Um, yeah, people to sit and face either outside or inside. And it it was just like a really good use of um, waste material that would otherwise have been costly. And yeah, um, I mean, we still required a dumpster bin, but it reduced the amount um, to put in. That's amazing. I didn't realize that about um, reusing the material in gabions. And hearing you say gabions I, made me realize like, that's such a, I don't know, if, I think it's a landscape architectural term. I mean, other people use gabion walls, but it's yeah. um, like, are you the only one on your team who does have that background or? There are other people on the team that had kind of um, like ecosystem restoration management type of skills and experience. Like l- the project requires a city permit, which is kind of, um, mm-hmm. um, it can be a, a very time-consuming process, lots of follow-ups. So there, there were regulations and, you know, call before you dig and getting um, locates. So there's, um, yeah, a whole bunch of kind of checklists of important things to do before removing pavement, before digging or, or c- yeah. cutting into that. Um, we did find in the middle of the side yard was actually a concrete platform underneath the asphalt. So that was a lot of like, you know, you, you find unexpected conditions on site that have to be managed. Um, right. Yeah. So, you know, all of that ha- is happening on um, like a community led project, which, you know, is challenging. <laughs> 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's that's interesting I, that your background in historic preservation and history of like, interest in the history of sites is there's a whole other history, right? What's lying right beneath our feet all the time mm-hmm. right, that people maybe don't think about. And then you start digging into the site and discover all kinds of things. Like, so what was the platform, the, the well, platform? So the store before it was this kind of corner store was a, a butcher shop and oh. there was a, a basement hatch. So there used to be kind of those two doors that open up in the, in the sidewalk surface and deliveries that go down into the basement. So when, um, when that was no longer used, I believe they just uh, took off the doors and like filled the whole thing with um, a layer of concrete. Oh, wow. Yeah. That we had to take <laughs> so like, out. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So how yeah. long did this whole, the building process take? Well, the, the removal of the pavement was one, uh, one job, one kind of arduous job. But yeah. the placement of soil was, was not easy either. Um, so we had ordered two truckloads of soil and um, the truck couldn't just dump the soil at this location because there were power lines that were too low. And so they actually had to dump around the corner uh, at a different <sighs> location and we had to wheelbarrow like two truckloads of soil around the corner, which is how everyone enters and leaves the store. Um, and it was raining and um, it had to get done because we had volunteers planting the next weekend. Um, There's all right. sorts of time constraints that, um, you know, make it a challenge. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and realities. And, um, and, I, and I do want to hear about the other project that you work on, but just this opportunity to really be building things, seeing things, working with people on performing those duties that I know, you know, many people entering the field of landscape architecture may not have the chance to get to a site, you know, right Mm -hmm. away. I mean, it was a great experience just um, understanding all of these kinds of um, limitations or factors in getting work done, just so you know, so you know for the future. But I I think the real value of the DuPave project is having neighbors come together at this site, um, neighbors who don't know each other, um, working on something positive, and hopefully feeling proud of the result and mm-hmm. taking care of and stewarding this site for the future um, yeah. is, I think, the real value of the kind of citizen direct action of the project. Um, I also am I'm working on a pilot project with the city and there are many kind of horticultural sites that are not maintained and there isn't um, there isn't anyone taking responsibility for them. And like in this case, through the way that it was made, it guarantees you kind of um, stewards and people that are stakeholders of this project that will feel connected to it to take care of it. So you're working with the city and you're you're both building and maintaining existing green infrastructure? Mostly, it's mostly um, maintaining. Green Force TO is a workforce development program within Green Streets, which is a 
a program of transportation services. Um, so it started in 2021. And yeah, it's there are a lot of green infrastructure sites which have not been maintained sufficiently for it to function, um, to have its full functionality. And so we have a team of people that visit these green infrastructure sites um, on our kind of rotating schedule and they maintain not just the um, the kind of the stormwater function of it, but also the plants and uh, pulling out invasives um, when needed, um, planting, planting new species. But generally, I mean, they're making sure that it, it still functions as a stormwater management um, kind of green infrastructure site. It's a workforce development program. So have you needed to educate people who never have heard of like, what is green infrastructure? And like, why is this important? For sure. Yeah. So Rainscape, um, we have partnered with Building Up, which is also a social enterprise. Um, they do a lot of um, training for more construction-related careers, um, say in electrical contractors or carpenters or placing people directly into these trades. But we thought that we could kind of expand um on that workforce development to include landscape. Um, mm -hmm. So we partnered with them and um, we had initially targeted neighborhood improvement areas. So using these kind of um, under-maintained horticultural areas and green infrastructure sites to create local employment um, opportunities. And yeah, um, you know, people who have barriers to employment it's really exposing uh, like a, a whole bunch of different people to the idea of green infrastructure. And we have kind of onboarding sessions which talk about green infrastructure in terms of, say, the natural water cycle, the natural hydrological cycle, and how the urban environment is very much a, a disrupted water cycle where there's virtually no infiltration and then um, no groundwater flow and an incredible amount of surface runoff. So this is water that doesn't get cleaned, um, filtered naturally, and goes straight into our, our lakes and rivers, and how you know that imp impacts water quality and, and what green infrastructure does to, to kind of hack this disrupted cycle and create areas of infiltration. Whether it's a green roof, whether it's these bioswells, whether we're detaining water from a combined sewer system by having rainwater cisterns and kind of managing combined sewer overflows, like green infrastructure is kind of one method. But, I mean, there are kind of many methods. This is like a, a source control um, or a conveyance control, but not like an end of pipe solution. Got it. And you mentioned it's a exciting time, right? Summer, I guess, in the warmer months, you're sort of getting up off the ground and it's going to be a busy season for you all, it sounds like. Yeah, so it's our third season. Uh, we have a great crew, um, and we just started last week. We have some new initiatives this year, because we're in our third year. Some new initiatives that we're hoping to get off the ground and, and to kind of further our impact with our environmental and social objectives. Awesome. Well, before we move on, I'm curious if people are interested in Rainscape or the the work or the initiatives. Are are there ways to get involved, or do you take volunteers? 
For sure. So the Green Force TO project this year, we have a um, kind of community ambassadors program. We're looking for community members from a variety of neighborhoods where our green infrastructure is located to um, help steward a site and kind of bring awareness to the community and in the neighborhood about this uh, asset and about this resource to help like maybe lead a tour of different green infrastructure sites. I mean, this would be kind of their own project, but uh, we will be putting out a posting for it. We usually post on goodwork.com mm-hmm. um, and that would be kind of your own project with an honorarium until uh, from the spring to the fall. We are on the city's Green Streets webpage as well if anyone is interested. The Green Streets section has a, a whole bunch of resources, drawings, specs, uh, all sorts of information about different types of GI. That's wonderful. It's been excellent hearing about your background, moments in your life that we all have that caused you to make a transition and how you look back on those things um, to what you're doing now. I wonder if there are any things we didn't ask you that through this conversation you might have thought about or want to share, um, particularly as they might relate to people who are interested, I think, in in landscape architecture, but also professions or or ways that they can work to benefit their community um, or interested in professions or enterprises that are doing work that touches the city and improves the places we live uh, in the outdoor environment. Basically, an an open question to you, if there's um, anything you'd you'd like to share. Well, like I've always wanted to do environmental work. I've always wanted to um, kind of improve, do do good work that benefits the environment. And I think landscape architecture is uniquely suited to respond to this time of climate crisis. And I think it's, uh, it has, you know, this medium. We have so many opportunities to, to do good work that responds to, say, the the extinction of um, so many species, of providing habitat for wildlife, of regenerating the land, for um, offsetting carbon, you know, to say manage food security. There, I, I just think that the, you know, the profession is uniquely suited to respond to the call. And, and, and I do think, you know, we are heading towards a crisis, or if not in one already. And it's really important that we all act in like in our like the best of our capacity to help. Right. Yeah. No, I couldn't agree more and I think it's an important message to leave off on and and also a encouraging message like people I think receiving this education and working in this field do have the ability to make their their contribution and um I'm so grateful to have spoken to you and, and hear about yours. And it's uh, it's been a really lovely conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I um, always enjoy talking to you. It's always so much fun. And I hope to talk again uh, and see you again sometime. Of course. Yeah, off, off the recording, offline. <laughs> <laughs> well, that sounds great. Um, thanks, Renee. Thank you, Elspeth.